Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society, or should I say the first episode of 2021. We did record this episode in 2020, but we feel like the context and the politics are broad enough for it to be a great introduction to our year ahead. We are so excited today to be joined by my personal favourite sociologist right now in the UK. I'm, I'm describing him wow. as a sociologist. <laughs> <laughs> For very, um, if you know him, you'll know why I'm saying that. So the deep we're, guy, the deep guy, the deep wow, guy. So we're really lucky today to be joined by Loki, who is a hip hop artist and political campaigner. Loki, welcome to Surviving Society. Uh, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. I'm definitely not worthy of that, especially from a podcast that has had some of my favourite thinkers on it in the recent history, whether it's Paul Gilroy or Dan or others who I admire greatly. So thank you very much. That is really kind of you to say. And um, it's great to sit down with you both and uh, talk about where we are. Where are we? Um, <laughs> obviously, obviously, we can only so just to give the listeners a little bit more context. It is the 18th of November today. We have had a bit of a crazy month as well as a crazy year. We've had a global pandemic. Biden has just been elected president, and the UK government, as per, is an absolute fuckery. We are in the midst of a possible realignment p- politically, and we are really excited to have Loki on because we feel like he's really good at historical historicizing and contextualizing politics within the contemporary but also making potential predictions as to what we could see um, ahead of us geopolitically and that's definitely what we all need to be doing right now is to be thinking and planning as to how we're going to respond to the leading forces the nation states that are going to be realigning during this time so should we start? I I would say it would be a good idea to start with the election because there is an extent to which we will look at what is happening now as a break in regularly scheduled programming. But there will be several main continuities and the orthodoxy and bipartisan necropolitics will become clear. And by the time that this is airing, I think it's important for people to know where we were at the time of the election. So we looked at a situation where billionaires in the United States managed to accumulate $637 billion during the pandemic, simultaneous to 50 to 60 million people losing their jobs and 10,000 bankruptcies taking place per day in the United States. Now, while it was a large turnout, larger than previous elections, about 169 million people did not vote. Could it be to do with the fact that they saw that they did not have the opportunity to vote against the interests of those billionaires who seemed to have done so well during the period when so many of them had suffered so much? There were almost 5,000 separate protests around Black Lives Matter across the United States. Now, my argument is that those protests are as much about the kind of systems behind Biden 
and Kamala Harris and also Barack Obama as behind the very crude, very in-your-face, quote-unquote, our ancestors tamed a continent racism of Donald Trump. Now, we're talking about a situation whereby by January, when this will air, it's estimated that about 400,000 people will have died of COVID-19 within the United States. And there are only a million hospital beds in the US for a population of 330 million people. They're even, as we speak, having to set up field hospitals in places like Milwaukee, put up tents in the street. And 48% of those frontline workers do not have any right to sick pay. During this period, you've seen about 43 million people lose their employee guaranteed healthcare. And let's not forget that those 10,000 bankruptcies, which are happening per day in the United States, about two thirds of them um, are estimated to be due to healthcare debt. So it's a really um, serious problem. There's, as of September, so uh, a while before January, you're looking at 10 to 14 million households in arrears because of unpaid debt. Now, at that time in September, it was about $17 billion in rent debt. But by January, it's estimated to be about $34 billion in uh, rent debt. Hunger across the country tripled um, since 2019. And the number of children that are going hungry in the United States is 14 times higher today than it was in 2019. Now, if we think about when the Black Lives Matter protests originally sparked off, you were in a situation where people had got a one-off payment um, of what was about a week and a half's wages from March um, to when the kickoff was, because it was about $1,200, right? Now, mm -hmm. the median personal income in the United States is about $876 a week. So what you were asking people to do between March and the start of the Black Lives Matter protests was live off of a week and a half's wages for about two and a half months. So in a situation like that, stuff like looting is pretty straightforwardly often about people being able to feed themselves and survive. But also at the same time as that looting, quote unquote, was taking place, you had bankers on Wall Street getting $1.5 trillion in stimulus payment from the US government. So one of the things that was interesting to me is the way in which if we look over the past four decades, as we will get to later on in the conversation, neoliberalism has hollowed out within the metropoles of both former British Empire and current US Empire, any semblance of what we call an industrial working class. And it exported those contradictions to places like India and China, who are very fast developing economies. And let's not forget that the 20 fastest um, uh, developing economies in the world, are none of them are in Europe, and several of them are former British colonies. So what you have is a situation whereby neoliberalism has required governments to go into wars pushed by arms companies that require also a demonizing of other people abroad. Now, what Sheldon Wallin called it was inverted totalitarianism. So the uh, traditional totalitarianism was whereby the state 
was dominant on all aspects of the society and dominated um, private interest in the society. Inverted totalitarianism is where private interest dominates government. So whereby we are not able to vote against the interests of BAE systems or in the United States, you're not able to vote against the interests of Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. Now, the Democrats in this equation, and often you see neoliberalism as a precursor to a sort of neo-fascism, because when the state has been hollowed out in such a way, when people have experienced this alienation across the country, when a certain standard of living they were used to is no longer afforded to them, they turn into this, they internalize the demonization of the other which has happened abroad, and they ask for more and more um, harsh policies against those people and seek to sort of purge the society of the, its impurities to return to this kind of golden age, which actually never really existed. When you look at the Democrats, I would say they represent something that Lisa Duggan referred to as optimistic cruelty, whereby policies will be enacted, but the people that enact those policies will have a sort of optimistic um, feeling about the outcome, despite the cruel effects those policies have. Now, um, Lauren Berlant actually inverted that to, to talk about cruel optimism. Now, to me, cruel optimism what is being expected of the rest of us to look at people like the Democrats as a break in that chain. What I would say they represent is us giving more popular consent to what is quite serious social injustice. In terms of the party membership of the Democrats, they have very, very little control over the policy of the party. You cannot get onto the Democratic Committee unless you are a superdelegate. And those superdelegates are appointed, the people that generally get appointed into that position of, of, um, of being on the National Committee are um, superdelegates like lobbyists, like ex-politicians. So there is a real gap and space between what the membership may want and what the people on the National Committee who define policy May, uh, may be asking for. Loki, why are you tracking? Why are you tracking? It's when he started talking about, see, the cruel optimism. Like, that's what, that's, that's what I engage in. <laughs> as in, like, I just need that, I need that optimism of Trump not winning to just, like, no. get me yeah, through yeah, the week. It's understandable. It is Absolutely. understandable, but Absolutely. it's unacceptable. It's not, it's not enough. It's not, no, no, it's no. Not it's enough. Not, but it's not a personal thing. We had these last four years. It's a choice. It was a choice between catastrophe and disaster. So we'd rather go with disaster because it's, we, we, we can work with that. But catastrophe is a fuckery place to be. What you said, obviously, I can't argue what you said. And But I think people understand once we get over this catastrophe, disaster is where we want to be. They, they need to work it out there. What you're describing is the status quo and what people are always struggling under the status quo. Coming from the catastrophe where we were at, disaster is where people need to beat. It'd be a fool to say the Democrats are any better. They're not. They're part of that system, right? So the issue is inequality as it's always been. Well, I think, no, I hear what you're saying. Absolutely. Um, and I think the important thing to look at is you have the same people that are the donors for the Republicans switch their money, especially the oil companies late on switch their money to the Democrats. But you also have a situation whereby in the United States, lobbying is defined as citizenry petitioning the government. So what you're basically doing is humanizing corporations 
and putting them into the position of citizenry petitioning the government, when in fact that is a system of legalized bribery um, in every way, shape uh, and form. But following this election, a lot of the Democrats turned around and said, well, the places that we lost were actually due to the people that uh, call themselves uh, socialists. But let's be absolutely clear. Rashida, Ilhan, AOC, Jamal Bowman and Corey Bush all won. And they have explicitly run on tickets that are progressive. But let's not confuse people like Kamala Harris and Jaden with those people. They do not push the same kind of politics. And even when you look at major donors to the Democrats, like Lloyd Blankfein, he was used to be the CEO of Goldman Sachs. He said quite hmm. clearly that if it was a choice between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, he would have to vote for uh, Donald Trump. So there are those hoping that out of this situation, you could get a kind of new deal way out of this economic downturn. But the problem is that only 11% of the US uh, population um, that are workers are uni unionized. So only 11% of the workers of the United States are unionized at this time. And you no longer have the Soviet Union providing an alternative um, idea for people. So what that means is that the dynamics which created FDR's New Deal do not exist. And that same kind of pressure does not exist on Joe Biden. So what I also want to say is that you have a kind of system with the Democrats that Eduardo Bonilla Silva called profound racism without racists. With Trump, mm. you have a clear, pronounced example of racism. But with the Democrats, you have the kind of bureaucratic and administrative violence that um, it also has uh, an effect whereby 13% of the population who are African-Americans make up 40% of the prison population. It's important for us to understand when thinking about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, the prison industrial complex, because they are two people who have played very important roles in the development of it. That current debate, specifically that, is what's going on in America right now, where the, the whole idea of being a black conservative or not taking the Latino vote for granted. There is that conversation where they understand now and quite explicitly that Democrats are, are just as can be just as problematic and racist as Trump, but will not say it as overtly. So mm. there's that conversation that's going on right now. So people are aware of this, right? But how, whether they put that into action, it's another question, right? Some of these really important lessons, Loki, that you're giving us on contextualising and being quite politically pragmatic, I think, about the realities of the result of this election. How can we map some of this stuff onto the UK context? Like, mm. of course, we've got it's very in terms of the institutions and how elections come about and the parties in general. It's different, but it's similar you mentioned Bernie Sanders and that way up between Bernie Sanders and Trump, even though Corbynism was annihilated um, in the UK, I feel like we had much more of a chance for socialism than they maybe did in the UK. And I'm not sure why that is. I'm thinking more to sort of 2017, where we know now that the Labour Party um, sabotaged itself because they didn't want to have socialism in the way that Corbyn was imagining. But how can some of the things that you're talking about now map onto our context of in the UK? Well, I think the rest of us who did a lot of grassroots work to try and get Jeremy Corbyn into number 10 underestimated the malignancy 
of Labour and its connection to the British establishment. We thought somehow we could deliver socialism from above without doing the necessary groundwork in terms of political education in our communities, unfortunately. Mm. That's like a perfect summary of it. That's what happened. (laughs) And so precisely in that way, the lesson from Keir Starmer and Kamala Harris and Joe Biden Mm. is that you defeat the far right with police. Because Keir Starmer was the head of the CPS. Uh, we'll get on to, I guess, with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, what they represent in terms of their political careers has been locking up poor, racialized people. That's just the truth. OK, that's just the truth. I, I don't want to see it like that, but that's just how it is. And so what those two parties are telling us is that regardless of what the memberships of each of these um, parties want, Those are the only people acceptable to the establishments in these countries. And when you're dealing with Britain, don't forget you're dealing with a country that has 104 US uh, military installments in it. So we are not a quote unquote sovereign nation in the way that a lot of the far right like to think we could be. We are occupied by the United States in a seriously major way. And one of the reasons why this spy cops inquiry is so important uh, for people to get onto if they can. Can you say what spy cops is? So basically, um, the special demonstration squad was set up in the British police to spy on left wing groups and trade union activists. And it was set up because the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign actually launched a protest outside the US embassy and ended up smashing some windows. So the special demonstration squad was formed to at least partially try to protect and ingratiate the British government to the US government at that time. Now, a thousand political groups were infiltrated by the special demonstration squad, okay, since 1968. Now, what was really scary about that is that the special demonstration squad eventually was collapsed into counterterrorism. So As has been listed in the inquiry, if you're a left-wing journalist, if you're a trade union activist, if you are a community organiser, there's a very strong chance that you are being surveilled by counter-terrorism now because Special Demonstration Squad was collapsed into counter-terrorism. So the idea is, is that we can defeat the right with the security state. But the right and the security state already exist in a symbiotic relationship anyway, because you look at Trump's ideas about the world, they come from the war on terror. You look at the ways in which he tries to turn people and encourage that sort of horizontal blame and vertical solidarity. It's by saying, look at those people on the border. They are terrorists. You're more like me. You're like a billionaire Trump who hasn't paid his taxes in God knows how long. Right. So it's that horizontal blame and vertical solidarity. But It's the same thing that people like Keir Starmer, when you get down to it, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will just the same push the same securitizing myths. You know, the U.S. prison system is such a monolith. You are talking about people that earning as low as 86 cents per day. Right. But across their time in prison, they seem to generate as much as $60,000 for private interest because the prisons internally, there is the majority of the US prison system is actually public, but internally it's privatized, which means that private companies deal with all the nuts and bolts and ins and outs of the institution. If a relative dies while you're in prison in the United States, you have to pay the officers for their time to uh, escort you to the funeral 
of that loved one. Now, for someone getting paid 86 cents a day, you can't afford to pay the wage of somebody that might be on 25 to 30 to $40,000 a year. So often prisoners leave prison in debt in the United States. It is big business. Now, six out of 10 people in US jails are actually awaiting trial, which means the majority of people are basically held on what we call here remand. And the United States incarcerates more people. It puts more people in jail per capita than any other state in the world. There are 10.6 million prison admissions in the US each year. That means that right now there are more people in jail in the United States than there are people in the city of Philadelphia. All in all, to have that as a status quo, it costs $182 billion per year. So despite having 4% of the world's population, they actually have 25% of the world's prisoners. Now, how did that come to be? How did that situation come to be? It wasn't naturally like this. From Nixon to Reagan, you had them passing policies that increased prison population. But what Joe Biden did in 1986 was co-authored the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. Now, what that did is it led to a massive um, difference in the um, sentences you would get for possessing cocaine and possessing crack. Now, at that time, we know that the CIA, as has been written about extensively by great writers, The United States intelligence agencies like the CIA were working with the Contras in Nicaragua who were in exile in the United States. And the CIA gave them the green light to deal um, cocaine. And if you look at Rick Ross, the real Rick Ross, not the rapper, he was in prison for 27 years for selling crack. Okay, now he was approached by a journalist while he was in prison who said to him, I seem to have found evidence that you were dealing drugs for the CIA. And Rick Ross couldn't believe it. Check him out. You know, he he does interviews all over the internet where he is saying, basically, the CIA were funneling crack into specific neighborhoods within the United States. So simultaneous to crack coming into these neighborhoods, you had laws being passed that meant that if you possessed cocaine or you possessed crack, you were likely to have a different kind of sentence. He also sponsored the Anti-Drug Abuse Act in 1988. This is Biden. Now, that increased prison sentences. This is Biden. So that increased, and he boasts about these laws. So he boasts about his involvement with these laws. That increased the sentences for um, drug possession. But the big one with Joe Biden was the 1994 Omnibus Crime Bill. Now, one movement of the pen they doubled the prison population and quadrupled the sentences that people were being given. Now, as recently as the early 2000s, Biden was boasting about that law as the Biden crime law. Now, we can wrap this up in the mythology of security and protecting communities, okay, if we want to. But what we should also look at is the direct corporate beneficiaries who stood to gain from these types of legislation. And we see that somebody like Joe Biden actually on the prison industrial complex was to the right of George Bush. His perception of George Bush when in government was that he was quote unquote, not tough enough, bold enough or imaginative enough. He had called for harsher punishments for drug dealers than George Bush. So that's pretty incredible. 
Now, the Patriot Act, which was the single most invasive piece of legislation following September 11th that we have ever seen in the history of the United States, it gave them access to all of our information. The National uh, Security Agency is in our methods of communication on a day-to-day basis and has access to it, partly thanks to the Patriot Act. Joe Biden boasts about having written the precursor to the Patriot Act. He doesn't see a problem with that. Let's not forget when he and um, Obama were in the White House, you had um, the the coup against a democratically elected government in Honduras. You had the overthrow of a democratically elected government in Ukraine. Both of these backed by the CIA and backed by um, Obama and uh, Biden. Remember that Obama actually intervened in the um, situation in Haiti to keep down minimum wage to um, literally a few cents a day in order to serve the interests of the corporations who use Haiti as a workshop. Biden also voted for taking welfare um, under the previous welfare system when 70% of those receiving it were children. He supported uh, the North American Free Trade um, Agreement, which led to the loss of 4.5 million manufacturing jobs. So, you know, this is not someone. Their government led us to a situation where the U.S. gives $750 billion in subsidies to fossil fuel companies, right? That was the Democrats. Simultaneous to 0.2% of the U.S. federal budget annually going to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. So when we're in a situation where globally $5 trillion per year is given as subsidy to the fossil fuel industry, the U.S. government under Obama and Biden took us and escalated all these things to such a terrible place. Let's not also forget that when Trump and his dad were under investigation for discriminating against black people in their properties in the 70s, Joe Biden was in an alliance with segregationists who were fighting to stop US schools being integrated. So, you know, this is someone that supported student debt, which right now is at $1.5 trillion in terms of debt. And in the US, depending on the company you have that debt from, if you die, that debt is passed on to your parents, not for all of the companies, but for some of them. So it means you've got students with hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt sitting there. And yes, he said that he's going to forgive maybe $50,000 of it. I'll believe it when I see it, to be honest. But possibly one of the most damaging things that Biden did was he voted to repeal the Glass-Steagall Act, which was the way that they regulated the banks. When they took away the regulation of the banks, it allowed the banks to sell toxic debt, to get people pinned onto um, mortgages, which were rather than having a fixed rate, became a floating rate. So they would mm-hmm. directly target old people in communities where a lot of African-American people lived and say, how would you like to own your house? And so the person would say, yeah, I'd like that. I'd say, okay, sign here. And they sign you onto a mortgage that is not fixed. So it floats depending to the stock market. And so before you know it, 10 million people were thrown out of their houses and lost their homes. Biden and Obama did not bail out those people. They bailed out the banks who did not have those mortgages. Does that tie into brains of the inverted totalitarianism, right? So the idea that these a weak state is in service of corporate interests, is that a result of the logics of capitalism? Is that the natural progress of capitalism or, or neoliberalism? Is that the natural logics of it? Because 
like I said, the, the way this has evolved is it the historical circumstances that have led capitalism to this stage in 2020. It's so important that we have this kind of political education. When you talk about it like that, the problem seems so insurmountable because the beast seems so big. What you're doing is replicating what's always happened through history. So if you just take Western history, for example, there's always people, the small person taking on the state. It almost seems impossible. And it's only very few chance, chances that we've had there and we've done it. This goes back to our, uh, the spotlight, Chantal. The, the elite will always seek to exploit the masses and we always lose. But now we need to come to a realisation that these people are never going to help us. They are never going to help us. In a way, neoliberalism, you know, it first was formulated in the 30s, but it didn't take control of the political classes in the United States and Britain until the 70s. But when it came in, it, it gave a turbo boost to US capitalism as far as we understand it. But now, which is amazing, it seems to have provided the catalyst for the movement of capitalism from the United States to Asia and to the rest of the world. Because when you externalize manufacturing, and so Thatcher's time, you had about 40% of uh, the GDP coming from manufacturing. It went down. Now we're at a situation where it's about 12%, right? How did that happen? And same situation in the United States. We talk about NAFTA. We're talking about millions of manufacturing jobs going elsewhere. We're talking about deindustrialization. So what does that lead to? By becoming the manufacturing center of the world, you know, for 110 years, the US was the top exporter in the world. China has overtaken them in that regard. Look at that link. Look at that link. Yeah. You're linking it in. <laughs> so, so, but what it means, what's, what's amazing to me is that it's like neoliberalism has produced the very conditions for US decline in terms of hegemony. Now, the scary thing to me is that a study was done looking into 15 pandemics in uh, Europe's history. So from the Black Death in the 1300s, which is believed to have wiped out half of Europe's population, mm -hmm. to the 1918 Spanish flu, what followed were around 50 years of um, uh, depressed investment. So that meant economically that those countries were screwed for the next 50 years. Now, the way that the United States was able to emerge from the Great Depression was, yes, through the New Deal that FDR um, put into place, but it was also through the Second World War. So entering the Second World War produced jobs through uh, building uh, bombs and planes and stitching uniforms and putting people into the army. My fear is that there will be a combination of two things which follow pandemics. Number one, this idea that you can come out of the economic downturn through war. But number two, racism. When you look at the Black Death in Europe, it led to a massive increase in anti-Semitism oh, and yeah. targeting of Jewish people as plague spreaders, a huge increase in witch hunting. The idea is if you marry the racism that comes out of the pandemic with this idea that war can um, help uh, stimulate the economy, you may lead to an increase in war with China as a, a reasonable idea. You know, there are 400 US military bases surrounding China. When we're talking about China, we are talking about 1.4 billion people. Britain has 67 million people in its population. China is one fifth of the world's population. In terms of the development of Britain to become the world's number one economy, uh, 
through the British Empire, and now it's the fifth largest economy. When the East India Company was set up originally in 1600, Britain only produced 1.8% of global GDP. Now, it actually makes sense if you think of Britain as what we know Britain to be today, rather than 14 million miles of the globe that it became through colonialism. At the, the period of 1750, India and China accounted for 75% of global industrial output. So the natural or more natural equilibrium of the global economy prior to the development of Britain was India and China being the first and the second largest economy. Between 1750, 1750 and, uh, and the 1900s, Britain increased their per capita GDP by 347%. So that was in a, a short period of human history, um, economic power became concentrated in a very small part of the world's population, i.e. Um, the British ruling class. So British industrialization was based on the attempted de-development of China and the successful de-development of India. Now, realize when we're talking about China, it is the world's longest existing polity. There have been five different periods that have been identified by historians where China was the most advanced um, unit, uh, whether it was the Han Dynasty, the Tang Dynasty, the Sung Dynasty, the Ming Dynasty. There's a bit of uh, controversy over whether the Qing Dynasty was one of those that had the most advanced uh, civilizations. But we're talking about a country that had steel production a millennium and a half before England. It had printed press half a millennium before England. Cheng Ho um, sailed the seas uh, before the Gama and Columbus. They didn't choose the route of maritime expansion that the British and uh, the US, uh, well, the British did. But we have to understand that US economic um, supremacy is, is, is linked to that Anglo-Saxon power that came out of Britain. And if we're talking about racism in the United States towards Chinese people, we have to remember the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. It was made illegal for Chinese people to enter the United States. The Chinese people that were already in the United States, some of them were killed. Um, uh, and at the same time that they were building the Statue of Liberty, you had this type of legislation passed which did not allow Chinese people to come in. And think about the irony of this great symbol of US capitalism, Forbes magazine, printing an article in 2011 saying Chinese secret weakness was opium and heroin addiction when the Forbes family actually got their wealth from selling opium in China um, uh, during that period in a way that was enforced by Britain's opium wars. So the same period that US millionaires were being made through the selling of heroin they carved out what were new Chinas, so Christianized, Westernized parts of China, like Hong Kong. Um, and so that period is what the Chinese referred to and what followed on until the 40s, what they referred to as the great century of humiliation. And it wasn't really that things started to change until 1978. Where we were in 1978, the Chinese economy was only worth 5% of the US economy and 80% of the Chinese population lived in poverty. At that time, the developed world only accounted for two thirds of the world economy. 
and what we call the West, the developing world only accounted for one third of the global economy, but the developed world counted two thirds of the economy, despite the developing world containing 85% of the world's population. Now, for the next 35 years from 1978, while the British and the US establishments were embracing neoliberalism, the Chinese economy grew around 10% each year by becoming the center of manufacturing. So what we're talking about is a period of time in China where 750 million to 800 million people were emancipated from poverty. For that period of time, it was two thirds of global poverty reduction took place in China. We're talking about 750 million people not living in poverty. For a country that has very limited natural resources and very limited uh, access to water and, and, and natural water, that is quite a miraculous achievement that by 2030, China will have one third of the global economy and overtake the United States very, very easily. It's uh, projected it will be twice the size of the US mm. economy um, and larger than the US and European economies put together. From what you kind of said, the logics of, the, of, of Western capitalists or neoliberals have been exported out to former colonies, right? So do they follow the same path of the development? Because what you're seeing in places like China and India is the exploitation of rural poor that are becoming urban poor. So it's almost following the same patterns of industrialization that happened in Great Britain in 1750 that happened in America in the 1930s. If this is true, the logics and my fear is that somewhere like Africa will adopt this, this kind of strategy that's been exported across the world. I mean, the question is, how is automation going to change these kind of things? Because as it stands, there's about a million car accidents a year that are supposed to be caused by human error in people driving cars. When you turn all of those cars into automated contraptions that drive people where they need to go and you remove the possibility of human error, you could possibly save a million lives. But what you also do is take jobs away from people that work as cab drivers. So you have huge swaths of humanity who are no longer useful to the economy. So stuff like universal basic income becomes an inevitability in that type of situation. I don't know how automation will affect that situation because then it turns from being 1.4 billion people being human resource that can be used for labor to 1.4 billion people potentially being a burden that you have to provide for as the central state. Do you see what I'm saying? So, yeah, I yeah. think automation is going to be really interesting. When we're talking about China and just think in particular last sort of year in the pandemic, how can we talk about it geopolitically and also within the context that you've been describing without engaging in xenophobia or appeasing like the public discourse of anti-Chinese racism, in particular thinking yeah. about the discourse that's emerged post pandemic and also obviously that which was rolled out by the Republicans and Trump um, over the past year. Like how can we talk about the structural issues that this new world order where China's at the forefront, because that's why sometimes I find this conversation difficult to engage in, because I don't want it to look like that I'm contributing to any of those discourses. And I think I don't think that you have just then when you were saying that, but I know mm. it's quite easy for other people to fall into that trap. Well, I think people of our generations are used to a stage where Britain and the United States seem to have something called the international community 
behind them, which basically means the United States having almost a thousand military bases worldwide is able to impose its will on other governments around the world. Now, the first time that we have seen the international community mean nothing is in the case of US escalation with China. As we said earlier, you're looking at the China Development Bank and the China Export Import Bank giving more loans to the global south than the World Bank as it stands today. But more than that, you look at countries that are US allies, major US allies, that could be used against China, like the Indian government, for example. They happen to have uh, a very good trading relationship with China. In fact, their largest trading partner is China. You look at a country like Australia, also home to many US military installations and always, and it's part of the Five Eyes Network, which is basically Britain also being part of it, is a military and surveillance alliance with the United States, which facilitates our populations in Britain, in Australia, in Canada, um, being spied on by the United States. So those governments facilitate the United States spying on their own populations. Even Australia's largest trading partner is China. The same for Brazil. You know, Brazil is, especially under Trump, a serious ally of the United States, but its largest trading partner is China. You even look at the 16 plus uh, project that China has in Europe that includes many Central European and Eastern European states, the Belt and Road Initiative, it includes 70 countries, sorry, that China is working with. Loki, um, can you explain what the Belt and Road Initiative is? The US military bases exist around the world to um, guarantee the movement and the passage of goods. So it's not just about US foreign policy, it's about making sure ships that are full of oil and full of other stuff that the developed world needs does not get taken and hijacked by people. So often the US military bases are there to protect that movement of goods around the world. The Belt and Road Initiative is an alternative way of what they call rebuilding the Silk Road, whereby China and other governments around the world will cooperate on the movement of goods without US involvement. So that's pretty major when uh, you think about it. The point that I wanted to make in terms of talking to your initial question was that we are on the isolated side of things. We, because of growing up in the decline of empire and because we, all of us, have probably traveled the world and been able to speak English in different places where people, it's not their, it's not their kind of um, mother tongue, quote unquote, we are used to the idea that when the United States speaks, it's speaking from a place of authority. But what we're actually seeing now is they are more and more, and especially coming out of this pandemic, more isolated than they've ever been. And us, through our connection with the US government, through being a launch pad for 104 US military bases, more, are also more and more isolated than we've ever been. So we're seeing almost the natural economic equilibrium of the world return to a more equal distribution of economic power than it had been for the last three to 400 years. But, the question but, is, how is Britain going to be able to take that? China's relationship with those countries that you said is, is problematic. The Belt Road Initiative is problematic to certain countries. It's made countries like Pakistan take on debt and they didn't want to take on debt, so they went to, went to the Saudis. China is no different in its seeking of power than the Americans are. They, they are just another superpower, okay, right? But I have no reason to doubt the first thing that you said regarding debt, mm. and, and that is a nature of, of international relations. 
But the <laughs> second on. statement that it's no different from the United States, even if we were to take a more longer way of looking at it, we were to say the one China policy is brutal. Um, people in the direct um, vicinity of China mm. will maybe have uneven power relations, right? Mm. We're not, for me, it's not comparable in any way, shape or form to a state that has almost a thousand military bases worldwide, that right. has the IMF and the World Bank. It's, it's, it's I, I would say, I, I would just take slight issue with the statement yeah. that it's no different. But the rest of what so, you said, I, I would understand. I would say China is at its start of its journey. So American American diplomacy, its gunboat diplomacy didn't develop until after World War II when it had those islands, had those Navy bases built up. Mm-hmm. Just like Britain, it took Britain a while to build up its gunboat diplomacy to guarantee ships and containers around. So that militarism hasn't built up yet. But um, China, under its, under its policy of the string of pearls and all those kind of things there, the string of pearls is a building up of military networks in that region. Right. Yeah. So in 2016, when they started the Bridge Road Initiative, they started the Stringer Pearls Initiative. And they also started another initiative called the Chips of China, which goes on to 2025. So China is seeking to become that dominant superpower. It's, it's seeking to, so it's on that path. So it might not have it now, but in 2020, but in 2040, if we had this same conversation, because right now we also have to talk about in conjunction with that, the racism that you spoke about earlier, China has that racism in there. The idea it teaches that it's one homogenous uh, group linked to the Han Dynasty. This is in there. The, the difference being, they do it under the banner of some kind of, I don't know if they consider themselves communists anymore, but under that banner, whereas the West did it under this notion of democratic freedom, but there's still this idea that they're seeking to take power. Yeah, no, no, I would just say I'm, I'm wary of um, making comparisons when, you know, you have one side of the equation surrounded by 400 US military bases. It's not... Mm. It's there's 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 no even in terms of military spending, it's it's second to the United States. But like we said, you know, the US spends more than the next seven military spenders um, put together. So there's no parity in terms of in say, terms of military power. Give them time. Also, it's not a question no, of no. absolute. Yeah. States behave in their interests. And mm-hmm. it's not necessarily putting something forward as as unquestionable or something forward as flawless or even necessarily the society that I want to live in. Though I would say that what it has achieved in such a short period of time through largely peaceful means is miraculous. I would agree with that point. I'd say India is another country the same. I think in terms of leaguing, I think now India is fifth. And the UK is sixth in terms of GDP in the world rankings. So I would definitely say it, there's a difference. They didn't have to rely on the mass exploitation of, of most of the globe to achieve that kind of industrial liftoff that we have in the West, 100%. But again, that's a historical thing because things are different, right? I do think it's a historical thing and things are different. However, I would say that the West still use violent and extractive ways to increase its revenues and industrial production. And I guess where we could possibly see some possible long-term difference with China is, as Loki says, that this has been done for a non-violent means. So I think that, I think, yeah, we have the historical context, but the contemporary context of Britain and the but US we, and the West and the West, let me finish, and the West more broadly, is that it's still violent. It's still violently extractative. 
there's a similar process going on inside those countries. So in India, in Bangladesh, you have the Rana Plaza. You have all these, and you have Foxconn who work for most Western companies exploiting their own people. So you have this continuation. And if so, if you like, so um, for example, in Taiwan right now, Huawei, the head of Huawei has come and said, Taiwan, I'm claiming your production. Now, if you know anything about the, uh, the birth of modern Taiwan, you know that China went there and fucked them for a long time. So mm-hmm. you have to understand that these, this, they are problematic too, in ways, in, in different yeah, ways. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, absolutely. But also, I would say that we are people that lived through the two thousand and three war in Iraq. You know, <laughs> if a person was to oppose war in Iraq, it wouldn't mean that they were advocating for the Iraqi government. And I think that understanding the context of where we are today is a situation where the United States is escalating the idea of war on China. That there's competition between them and the rest of the world is is an undeniable fact. I think we have consensus. We have consensus that the natural movement of history is, is moving away from the colonial metropole of Britain and away from the United States as really serious economic powers. In terms of India, it's projected that China and India within the next few decades could be number one and number two uh, largest economies. Britain will be number 11 and uh, the US will be number three. What I think is interesting is how that will change power relations, but how that will also change our idea of racism and race. Because the, the, the justification for people saying that uh, white people were biologically superior to other people was the economic reality. That was the justification for saying in a biologically deterministic way, this group of people, you know, forgetting the fact that Irish people were, um, as Celts were were seen as biologically inferior, let's just say that racism was underpinned by the economic arrangement. How is it going to change things where in order for us to operate um, to our maximum potential around the world economically, we have to learn Mandarin? How is that going to change those power relations? It's going to be interesting. I gave a lot of thought to this. And, and if you go back to the earlier podcast, Chantel, if you remember I was saying that most people need to start thinking about China rather than how that's got an impact on how we live our lives going forward. In terms of, in relation to anti-Black racism, like that doesn't get impacted by the shift of economic power. And Islamophobia like, as that, well. I, think, I probably, you put and, and, Islamophobia, yeah. So they see each other as apparent between Europe and China. So there's always been that dialogue. So I, I was looking at some of the, uh, how the Chinese saw ancient Rome and vice versa. And they both saw them as equals. Equals that they don't have to see each other, but they saw them as equals. And this is historically how, there's that relationship between Europe and China that runs through. They are grudging respect for each other. Oh, guys, that was a lot. That was a lot. That was a lot. That was a lot. We're going to have to end there. Thank you so much oh, for joining so us. Yeah. Thank it's you. <laughs> thank you. And listeners, um, we'll see you again next week. And Happy New Year. God, that feels weird saying that. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 